Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit simplecast.com. Full Service Radio. everyone you're listening to district durka's live from full service radio at the line hotel durka durka muhammad jihad so it's 5 p.m and this is our new time for the show this is tuesday and we're broadcasting live no editing or anything and this is season two district durka's is all about a durka from yemen that's me sama and a durka from algeria lilia living in the district of columbia we get together every week to decipher the Middle Eastern experience in the capital of the United States. Our topics include feminism, sexism, terrorism, absolutism, atheism, monotheism, socialism, etc. And all the prisms and schisms in between. Was it me or were you just trying to get through that real quick? Not really. It's <laughs> just we started at 5.11, but let's not say, stress yeah. the 11. That was my bad. Yeah. Especially. So if, if you're listening to this on the podcast and not live... It, it's raining madness outside. It's been one of those weeks where everything is kind of falling out from the sky and we're taking cover. So for the delay, we're just having a very rainy Tuesday. So we, Yeah, the dog ate my homework. So, <laughs> so we're beginning with uh, a segment that we actually put together where we discuss two articles that we read this week in relationship to being a Durka. So yeah, what's a Durka again? Is it like being an Arab or a Muslim or a brown person from right, the Middle East right, or right. North Africa? Are we gonna throw that question in now? <laughs> you actually posted something on your Instagram that that was pretty hilarious uh, as an answer to that question. So actually, Lilia coined that, and she actually is gonna have a proper answer to that very soon. If you have mm-hmm. any questions, actually, our Instagram at District Durkas is a really good way to get in touch with us and send questions and have comments, and we are pretty responsive on it. So, what's a Durka? I, I just covered it. Right, I mean, right back at that's you. still in question whether it should be covered or not. That's something we'll discuss soon, right? Definitely. I mean, um, I think it's a, it's a thing that we continuously define as we go from one episode to the other. Yeah, but basically it's a derogatory term for anybody from North you know, Africa, Middle East, to, up to Southeast Iran, Asia sometimes, Muslim, yeah. Arab. Anything that can pass... For what they consider a Durka in Team America. Yeah, or in popular culture, like uh, vaguely somebody who wants to destroy. I mean, I think that's kind of the way that some people say it. Because I recently watched an SVU episode. And they used an entire Indian cast that they were supposed to be Syrians. And I guess that a lot of people would not realize the difference between those two cultures that much. You yeah, know, they're they just brown to. people. They're yeah. all the same. And talking about these brown people, um, our first segment is us choosing articles that um, kind of, you know, resonated with us. And this week I've picked one about pride, uh, LGBTQ pride in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. So they're the first Arab country to ever hold such an event. And they started last year. And this year, as they replicated the pride three days into it. The pride parade. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not just a parade. It's one week. It starts May 12th up until May 20th. And it's a whole week of events, workshops, mm-hmm. uh, 
arts, parades, parties, concerts, and three days into this year's Pride, it was canceled due to the organizer. His name is Hadi Damien, mm-hmm. was incarcerated, question, and then he was made to sign a pledge that the festivities and the, the Pride wouldn't go on. So why do we know why he was arrested? Was there a statement? It was a sabotage. They... They accuse him of saying something on social media that he didn't. They edited his the content. I- exactly. Yeah. So this is something to our audiences here. Facebook in the Middle East is a big deal. Anything you type on Facebook can be taken as an official statement, which I don't think happens here very much, except unless you're Barack Obama or something. <laughs> when so. did social media, I mean, were you, do you remember when social media kind of first came into your world? 2009 for you yeah yeah i mean we had something called high five before and oh, high five yeah. do you wow. remember high five <laughs> i mean my space never really picked up in the middle east high five was greasy it was it, it was, was greasy. Really it was kind weird. of like tinder it was like the, the old it was a tinder. way that you present yourself you know you have a section where you add music and then people hit on you it was heights weird. like affinities do you want to you know hang but facebook Everybody. i think You know, it came about in 2009, people used it, but it became really influential and a great way to organize in 2011. And there are a lot of books about how social media created the Arab Spring and the revolutions that happened there, which is fascinating. But on the subject of the Lebanese gay rights activists, I wonder if his arrests have something to do with the fact that Lebanon now has a new government. I don't know if our audiences know, but Lebanon had elections recently, and so the balance of power kind of shifted a little bit. And I kind of wonder if the new regime is not tolerant of LGBTQ communities like the former one. But definitely, just to highlight how diverse the Middle East is, just a few, you know, just like a country away, you have Saudi Arabia that is cracking down on women activists who are trying to drive cars. Yeah, which, what's the deal with that? So you're, you're lifting the ban, but you're arresting the people who m- made this a possibility? Right, so women were not allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia, and then with the new king and the new crown prince, they announced that they are going to legalize driving for a woman, and it's supposed to happen in June. But right before that happened, they arrested 10 activists, three of which are men, actually. And I think they're a little bit underrepresented in the media. Um, But it's interesting. I mean, I think you legalize driving, but then you arrest them and call them defectors. And um, what does that mean? Is Saudi Arabia, in fact... You don't want other changes. You don't want this power, this force of activism to tap into other problematic, uh, you know, norms in Saudi Arabia so you won't by decree say you want to have the control like you can drive or you cannot drive but you cannot have that incentive well, I of mean, change the reason that's what they want to stifle they want to be in control of change yes so, and they want it to look successful right so if something doesn't go well they probably do not want the genuine activists who fought for that right to make it look like it failed or I, think I guess for them to say like it wasn't you that got us to do this you know, like, yeah, it was, don't think you convinced us with your activism. But I mean, think of the stark contrast between, you know, a place where women are not even allowed to drive and being arrested for wanting to drive. And then in another country, just you have a whole week of LGBTQ, you know, I awareness mean, week, you know, and celebrating sexual diversity, like orientations, inclusion. Yep. So that, that's, that's not even a question. No, that's not even a question. In but, some countries, like you can't even. But they're definitely questionable. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think gay people exist everywhere, right? So just not having it publicly doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But do you have anything subject, in Yemen? 
Um, nothing official, but there are some there are some Yemeni activists who came out as publicly gay. They weren't entirely welcomed in society. It's you know the cultural norm to kind of shut it out. But I mean, here's the thing. You know, you have a place where you don't have access to so many things. And so to kind of throw such concepts at them, you know, they live in medieval times and then you're asking them to kind of keep up with the rest of the world. I think it could be shocking. Well, it depends what kind of like, you know, ancient times. Because it's, it's like having depending two, on two different conversations. It's like the medieval times. Behaviors like the behaviors that fluctuate whether they're accepted or not. You know, you but also, ask, you know, like, you have the same thing here in the U.S. where a lot of conservative places can't accept such concepts because of religion. And so it's, it's really hard to, I think, honestly, this is my opinion, for the safety of the LGBT communities in very conservative places, it's better to kind of um, exist in the underground scene that already exists for them rather than trying to bring it to the surface because that could mean that they are putting their lives at risk. I say rise up so that little by little when the moment comes, like you can gain traction because you've already established I think when the time is ready, yes. But you have the you time know, you is have to have already. You got to take the time away from these people who are, you know, delaying your progress. You can't just wait and be afraid. So I mean, it just depends on, you know, for example, if the country that you're in is just killing everybody left and right, like what's there for them to kind of respect what you're going through? You know what It's I mean? The you dilemma want to of revolution, I guess. Yes. Right? I mean, yeah. If Algerians felt like this, I wouldn't be here so talking to you, my dear. On the subject of conservative countries and on the subject of Saudi Arabia, my current event was something that came out in the New York Times this weekend and then was republished in Vox and then was republished in the New Yorker. And it was that Saudi Arabia and the UAE may have influenced the Trump election. Shocker. Well, it's kind <laughs> of fascinating because first it was Russia. I mean, I definitely cannot see Russia and Saudi Arabia and the UAE colluding together on this. It has to be two separate attempts happening separately. But it definitely just says that the Trump campaign was willing to meet with any influencer. Now, well, both Russia and Saudi Arabia had hotel ties with him, no? Yes. So when the presidency came about, I mean, this is nothing to do with Bahrain, but Bahrain rented out the entire hotel to celebrate their national day. So an easy way to influence Trump in D.C. is to rent out his hotel and just put as many guests and do as many events as you can in the hotel. And I don't see how America and Americans can stand for this. I don't understand how this kind of corruption or just like the temptation to be corrupt can exist and still have it continue. I, I mean, I don't know. And What the person who's involved in all of this is the Eric temptation Prince. for corruption. You don't understand how that exists. I mean, I don't understand how it could exist on such a blatant level and nobody says anything about it. It's like But right in front of They're your face. They're pointing it out. Not really. I mean, I think. But they are they pointing it out for their own agenda? Is this partisan? Is this really corruption Definitely. or is just. I mean, I mean, okay. So how hold on. Trying to establish a witch hunt, which I'm fine with because they're witch hunting Trump. You know, I mean, I don't think they didn't give Obama any respite. So on principle, I think that nobody there shouldn't be witch hunts. People need to be held accountable for their actions. I don't think anything needs to be fabricated. And I think in this case, Trump has a lot. I don't think it's fabricated, but I think everybody plays with the same cards. But then when you start accusing them of playing that hand while you're doing the same, it becomes like a political I think, you know, whether it's Trump or Clinton or whoever, they resort to that so, kind of financing that is, I know, found out something super ambiguous when I read this article, and that is that the person who mediated these meetings was Eric Prince, who is the head of Blackwater and has a lot of ties to Saudi Arabia and the, and the UAE. But the most interesting part to me was that Betty DeVos, the, 
Department of Education, the head of the Department of Education and Trump's nominee is actually his sister. And that is a surprise twist. It kind of makes sense why she's there. If there was, in fact, a promise for her to be or for her brother to help with the campaign, because she's somebody that a lot of people reject Mm. as the head of the Department of Education. I would love to see Trump or Betsy DeVos try to draw a map of these places. <laughs> As oh a director, it hurts. It hurts. Like the, that support, that relationship with countries that definitely are not trying to Democratic be... Democratic exactly. or liberal and oppressive. But think of it this way. If I have so much money and I'm oppressive and I see a very powerful person who could push my interests, willing to take my money, I'll take that chance. Like, I'll take it. Like, this is Then you life. understand why corruption exists. Yeah, but... I do understand it, but that's why I don't exist in politics because I feel like I wouldn't survive there for a day. But I I, just feel I'd, I'd love to see the end of that. I'd love to see the end of that. Like when there's going to be an investigation. Like some or norms and then you take the money from the people who squash these progressive norms. It's, it's a letdown. It's a bit like not discouraging because it's not that dramatic, but it's definitely... It's very discouraging for the people who live there when the most powerful country in the world is not taking your side, even though they are proclaiming your values... You yeah, know, but we're not going to put our heads on. We're going to continue, and you know, adelante. Of course, we have so to. So not discouraging, but it's definitely have to continue. Setback. But it's it's unfortunate. You know, you get to see very quickly that nobody in this world is going to defend you, even though you are with the you know the, the values. My mother that they will claim, and that's. I think that's. You know, you have to tell your mom I like her. I don't know her yet, but I think. Hi, <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast, Ilya says a lot of wonderful things about you. She will, and she'll be glad to know everything I think about Ramadan, which is the theme of today's episode. So how about we take a little break? (laughs) Such a rough one. How about we take a little break before we come back to this? The theme and break music you're listening to was produced by a certain somebody in the studio right now. We'll be right back. Hi, everybody. You're listening to District Durkas Live from the Line Hotel. This is full service radio, and we are the Durkas. My name is Sama, and I'm from Yemen, and another Durka from Algeria that's Lilia. Aloha. We live in the District of Columbia and we get together to decipher the Middle Eastern experience in the capital of the United States. Our topics include feminism, sexism, terrorism, absolutism, atheism, monotheism, socialism, etc. And all the prisms and schisms in between. So if this is your first time listening to our show, this is the segment where we get to the meat of the subject that we want to talk about. And this week, we're going to talk about... In the meat of the subject, huh? Yeah, I, mean, As we're I think my brain, my brain is going there. Because <laughs> Ramadan is upon us. So to those who don't know what Ramadan is... Get out of under that rock that you are, I if mean, you don't know. It's a month that is celebrated widely by Muslims around the world. And it's a whole month where they fast. They don't fast the entire month. They fast from sunrise to sunset every day of the month. 
It's um, enlightenment by, you know, famine, daytime and excessive eating, nighttime. And it's supposed to mark... It's a body shock. It's supposed to mark when the Prophet of Islam received God's words from God via an angel. And that's why we have Laylat al-Qadr during that month, which is a night where a lot of Muslims pray and they believe that your request to God cannot be turned away. So anything you ask of God will come true. And so... What's the most awkward question that you can hear during this month? It's, are you fasting? Yeah, well, the, <laughs> the reason why I said, like, you're living under a rock, I don't mean to exclude people, but it's like, I don't understand how Ramadan eludes anybody, especially if uh, you're a Christian or Jewish oh, or, yeah. or a Hindu or Buddhism, because fasting is kind of an old, like, it's an age-old concept. It, it's but not it's new, like, Muslims didn't come up with it. It's actually done pretty much the same way like the i think the no water aspect is a little new to some people because some people fast but they still have water or they fast off of one item at the time of moses he didn't eat for 40 days when he received the 10 commandments does it remind you of anything that's muhammad like being revealed and it's the same 40 days same thing with christ 40 days when he was traversing the desert yeah train people to be a bit of a hermit right like kind of meditate this is the point of ramadan it's not just to fast from food but also to fast from other things like speaking in uh, speaking ill of people gossiping it's about doing bad deeds you want to stay away from that it's about fostering good pretty much anything it's a month of giving it's a month of um, charity right so the giving is just your friends and family but also strangers that you don't know it's supposed to be a month where you reflect on your life and you try to kind of instill some discipline in yeah but People get yoga, but they don't get fasting, even though you give fast. So they, yeah. they understand like the basic premise of it is like, okay, you want to ascend to a higher state of consciousness. So you deprive your bodily needs because a lot of humans think that if you get away from you know, your body, then you will get closer to the spiritual. Yeah, I so mean, that's I what it I goes with poverty too. You know, like the idea of... Yes, the ascetic, the hermit. Mm-hmm. So why is it that when it's Ramadan, nobody knows what we're talking about, even though this is like thousands and thousands of years old this mm. concept of getting away from the body to ascend to a I higher think it's state it's beautiful it's my favorite time of the year but it's just badly branded like when it yeah. when it becomes it's like muslim branded, then it becomes that's the word. well people don't realize i think wh- how it actually works i've heard people say everything from like how do they fast for a full month without ever eating anything at all you know like i, I think the details get lost on so many americans and and non-muslims where they just I've never done the research or nobody's ever told them. And you know, you know to but be they know honest, about Lent. I think that right. a lot of I think that a lot of Muslims also don't necessarily know the right way to go about Ramadan. There's no right way to go about Ramadan. Well, I think to that, each his you own know, way. Think of it think of it this way. What I mean is there are some places in the world where people would stay up all night and just wake up like 30 minutes before they eat. So in in a sense they're not going through the fasting experience, oh, yeah, but well, they think that they're fasting. And then I also think that a huge part, you know, if you live in the Middle East, a huge part of Ramadan is lost in, like, the TV programming that comes with it. Isn't and that so great, though? I think it's fantastic. People wait the whole <laughs> year for the Ramadan programming. They have the like best the TV shows. Special, like, series. They have series trivias, quizzes, and songs, and performances, which is kind of strange, if you think about it. No, it's very festive. And no matter how you tell people that it's a festive month, they're like, no, we're, we're not buying this. Like you tell them, we live at night. Yeah. We, we go yeah. out. The shops are open. It's kind of like yeah, flipping it. Great. And the food. But oh, my God. The best part is the, the food. eyes of disbelief. Like, and it's, nah, it's not just because you're fasting deal. all day that the food is good at the end. It's just because, you know, 
people make dinner every day, but for Ramadan, they prepare special meals. And I am getting really hungry. Shit, so on, a go- on, a, on a good night, I would hope to stay out like all night long and sleep through the day. <laughs> that sounds great. I mean, that's kind of what we do. Like in Algeria, like a typical, like a, a, a basic Algerian will stay in bed all day and then wait for whoever has ovaries to prepare the meal mm-hmm. and then they'd go out and they'd have tea or, you know, not go clubbing, but without the, yeah. you know. They, go out and have the shisha and the tea. Yeah, the they'll food. substitute alcohol with marijuana or whatever it is. Well, and that's then, the thing. I still think that the right, like, and this is where I'm asserting a right and a wrong. I still think that Ramadan needs to go, like the person needs to feel hungry and the person needs to feel thirsty and they need to meditate in order for it to be the way that it was prescribed. But the way that people live it is different than the prescription. That's like people who think like the spirit of Christmas has been, you know, tarnished by the commercialization. So it's the same, like, which I, I think that's, you know, up to the individual. But really, like Ramadan is one thing, but its manifestation nowadays is different. It's completely commercialized. It's about the food. It's about, it's heavily, it's consumption. It's yeah. consumerism at its extreme so what was nice about people growing up in yemen for ramadan i think i was like one of the you know the last few young people who grew up and still were able to understand ramadan very well and it's mostly because we didn't have electricity a lot of nights so we weren't able to join in on the tv watching that the rest of the middle east did so and what the durka is that that would be yeah places where sometimes electricity goes away i mean especially in ramadan at night you're missing out on good tv and so you, people have to remind you on like, this is the purpose of this month. But, you know, the best part to me was that it's kind of family oriented. Everybody comes to the table and everybody's so helpful and nice because they have to. Except if you are out on the streets and people are fasting and it's 30 minutes before Adan, it's, which is when you break your fast, get out of their way. Yeah, get out of the fast and furious. Hungry people fasting are and furious. Crazy. <laughs> They're crazy. The yeah. worst accidents, the worst everything happens during that time when people are rushing to break their fast and to get that one loaf of bread like that one thing missing for from the food yes whatever it is yeah this is it's really bad uh, so and prices go up and they stay there i have a question so how interpretive is it for most people and how strict is it where does that line sit you know like who's who's really doing it by the books versus who is saying a, a more modern approach and you know i think that's something most people don't know So I think the religion gives people outs, meaning if you're sick, you don't have to fast. If uh, you're a woman and you're menstruating, you don't have to. If you're elderly, you get a pass. But at the same time, it's a time where you want to do good deeds. But I think it's ultimately up to the individual. I've definitely met people who pretend to fast just to pretend that they're part of doing the right thing, while in reality, they're not. It's not really the right thing or part of doing the fast. In their mind, right? Not, Not in general. But I... I mean, I think it's up to the individual. I really think it's ultimately about your own, like, how seriously do you want to take your relationship to your religion? Right. You know, do you want to be... Which is what Lent is for, like, most Americans or white people. It's like some people say, oh, I gave up, uh, you know, soda or something. And then some people take it very seriously and give up something way bigger. But I, That's you a know, great point. That's exactly that. Like, it is exactly that. But something about... Ramadan that's beautiful is like the collective feel of it and I think it gets lost in translation a little bit in the US mostly because I don't live in a Muslim community or with a bunch of Arabs or anything like that and so Ramadan feels really long in the US it feels really hot especially in the summer and I mean you struggle 
with the, the aspect of loneliness, not having the right food, and just no good TV. There's nothing to make you feel that it's a special day. Yeah, not at all. I would never have seen that growing up. But Which it goes faster when, you know, the, my Ramadan outside of Algeria went were easier because everybody went about their business and they ate and then did everything. So I didn't actually feel the weight of Ramadan. Whereas when I'm in Algeria, everything stops. Everything slows down. Everybody's complaining. Nobody's, you know, well, but people I think get all testy. the fun stuff happens. Yeah. No? Yeah. And the flip side, but definitely my easiest Ramadan have been in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> Proclaim. <laughs> and in, um, non-Muslim uh, majority countries because like, I, I was distracted by everybody else doing something else. Which brings me to another point about people of feeling that they can't eat in front of a person fasting, which is absolute rubbish. I understand I, I that it comes from a good intention, but it's in no way more respectful or whatever. Like, eat what you're eating, do your do, because... Like, this is not about food. No, I think I've, I've been told not to eat in front of, you know, you know, there are some people who fast not in the month of Ramadan just to do like extra chores. And I've been told not to eat in front of them. And I find that to be absolute rubbish. I agree with you. I think if you're fasting, the idea is that you resist that, you know, not that you avoid it, but that you see it and have self-control and self-discipline. And I think that's that's something that's missing, you know, like from the structure of, you know, in the Middle East, they, they allow you to go to work for six hours instead of the 12, and you go to work at like 10, and you leave at 2, and you sleep half the afternoon. But I think you're missing that ability to put yourself through something because you can. I mean, there's something to it. Yeah, so there's the charm of the collective, but then there's like, that's the flip side, not so charming of the collective of, you know, if I fast, therefore everybody needs hey, to fast, did, restaurants did need Trump to close. Did wish Muslims Ramadan, a good Ramadan? Is that? I doubt it. I don't know. I didn't check it. They didn't make. I feel know. like he would because it's just so. Looking this up. It's so typical of every president to do that. I mean, there there's a huge, like not huge, huge, but there's a decent. Oh, he did. Yeah, I mean, I feel like he would, but I feel like it would be non-believable. <laughs> like he'd be like, "Happy Ramadan to my Muslim Americans," and everyone would be like, "All right." Yeah, it's shut like up. when he said, "My African American over here." Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, but don't feel weird. <laughs> Didn't he say like my blacks or something? I don't yeah, know. Something like that. Yeah. It's crazy. If you have Muslim friends, like eat. Do not feel awkward or weird. And if they do, then if they are weird about that, they're just like, then remind Im- them that they're implementing they need some <laughs> kind of rape culture. Like, yeah. oh, you're wearing this, therefore I must. No. Yeah. So I have I have a, a friend who is fasting, and you know, the first day I believe of Ramadan as iftar. Is it iftar? Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Um, as that came. You know, she's cooking at home and her roommate who's not Muslim comes home and it's like, hey, I'm cooking a meal. It'd be so nice to eat together. And the roommate kind of like dissed her and got Uber Eats anyway and ate in her room. And my Muslim friend was like, wow, that's really shitty. Like, here I am eating alone. This is supposed to be a celebratory thing. So it's like, is that a way you can support somebody celebrating Ramadan to kind of be there with them during that first meal? I I think eating food with someone is nice especially when you've been fasting the entire day it's almost like a reward for the fast that you did and i think that her roommate sounds like what i would imagine of a modern selfish individual who wanted to eat and didn't really care for her food but i mean to what extent does the roommate know what 
the friend is going through. Does she know about Ramadan? Does she know that the roommate wanted to celebrate together? In this case, I think so. But I mean, just in general, is that is that in my eyes, she doesn't owe her anything. She doesn't owe her she anything, but it would be anything. nice to. But I mean, if I had a roommate, even you know, like like Sabbath dinner, like if I'm invited to my friend anything. and they're like, hey, you know, on Saturday I do so and so out of respect to you know they're living together. You'd want to like accommodate that somehow. Otherwise, it would make your living situation a bit. But would you want to eat with someone who feels forced to eat to respect some kind of notion that they... I mean, it becomes a mess. Really, when you do Ramadan, like you're stripping your reality from your checkpoints, I think it would be crazy to Mm. expect it every day. No, but okay. So when you do Ramadan, it's like you you strip your reality from usual like routines and what you do. So then you're left with, well, who am I when I'm not having my coffee, when I'm not having my... When my day is not regulated by these... So to me, it's like it's more of a personal journey. So whether the roommate wants to eat with me or not, it really becomes trivial. So the solitude is maybe a part of I it. I agree. I agree that the solitude is fostering uh, of those things that you're trying to discover and look at within you. But at the same time, the way that it's practiced in our culture means that you break your fast with family and friends and with everyone. You yes, know? but if it's a roommate who doesn't partake in that idea, I wouldn't want to force that I think the expectation, even, like, yeah. uh, even through a, a notion of them having to feel polite, that's dishonest. That's dishonest. I mean, it just, uh, to me, it just says oh, that you your bring roommate... bring your Uber Eats to the same table, maybe. Yeah. You don't got to go in your room, you know? Well, it depends what were her intentions. Well, maybe, like, maybe, maybe the roommate just doesn't like... The idea that her roommate is Muslim. I, I had a Muslim friend, roommate, and I hated breaking my fast with her, and I went to my room. She's so <laughs> annoying. Like, she brought the bad thoughts. I didn't want to deal with that. She was a little, like, so on the Salafi side of things. Something and also uh, about Ramadan is that you try to forget, like, hostilities, and you let bygones yeah. be bygones. So it's a good month to kind of just, like, let things go. Yeah, that's when I realized it wasn't going to go. Like, Forgiveness, patience, all the positive traits that you can think of is something that people try to foster. It doesn't necessarily happen because in reality, when you're hungry, you know, whatever you can't find naturally when you're eating is not going to be easy to find when you you're get hungry. hungry. And <laughs> yeah, I, I get hangry a lot. But a good model of breaking your fast, I remember this friend, so uh, his way was, okay, so he fasted, he prayed, and then he had his whiskey. At night? Yep. I mean, I've seen he broke his fast with his whiskey. I, I think everybody style. does what it's they can, stylish. and that's all that matters. I think that everybody does what they can, and the intention is really important, by the way. In Islam, intention is super important. I think intention is important everywhere, except for that adage that says, like, the way to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm. Uh, it's about your actions. It's about your actions. I think if a person wishes to do good and they do what they can, then that's that. Who are we to judge? This is a very personal thing. And well, you cannot judge intentions, can you? So this episode is you clearly can get away about, from about actions with religion intentions. and monotheism. So we're finally delivering on the district. <laughs> a little bit, but can Ramadan become Hanukkah? Or Christmas. Never. But that's the sad thing. Like but why Hanukkah. not? If like people kinda half follow Lent, because you know, why can't you like I asked today, I, I was like, you know, I kinda wanna try to fast a few days during this month just to see. Is that annoying or is that like I, I like as a white nice. dude's like, Oh god, that's white, so white. great. I that's think it's so nice. great. Yeah. I wanna make it commercial. How can we make it commercial, approachable, hip? There are fun? some people in America who tried to do that by buying boards and they stick stars to every day of the month to kind of teach their kids that every day they get something from the star they stick it on the board and they try to kind of create rituals around it but I think the best thing about Ramadan is at the end of it you have a Eid and in the Eid you have a brand new outfit and as a kid when the adults come to see you they give you money I don't know if they did yeah, that yeah money sweets everything I know sweets desserts you know you break your fast and you break it hard it's you know awesome 
And I, I love diets. Like so, it meant to see so many people. You go from one house to the other. You make money. And then you spend it, you know, if, if you want or you save it. I, I know a kid. So this is a very bizarre story. One of my cousin's children saved money over and over again and then decided to buy a goat. And then wow, in, in definition of, of Durka, yeah, number and, two. And in, and in one of the Eids in Islam, you actually slaughter a goat to kind of, you know, instead of sacrificing your child, uh, Abraham sacrificed like ultimately a goat. So they mimic that tradition. And so he actually, he got a goat and then he raised it and then he sold it for that Eid for double the money and then bought mm. another one. And he started a business where mm. he had so many goats And he would sell them for Eidolth hat. And he was like eight, but he was like the most creative entrepreneur awesome. I've ever met. And he uh, taught one of his, one of the goats that he had, um, he taught the goat to play soccer. And that was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen, where he would kick the ball to the goat and the goat would hit it back with its head. And it was... Yeah, the story took a turn. It's it did. For the better. <laughs> I mean, he Does he have an Instagram account? Oh, was no, that like no, no. way too? But he he was he was definitely it was kind of like a blessing to kind of grow up with him because he was the craziest child I've ever seen. He's the reason why I think people you know they think like mischievous children. He was the definition of that. He once met um, you know those cartoon characters that you see in Disney. So this guy who's dressed up as a cartoon saw him and was like, "Oh, cute little kid! I'm gonna take a photo with you." And my cousin's kid pretends that yeah, I'm cute. I'm gonna take a photo with you. So the guy bends over. And he grabs the piece on top of his head off and he lifts it up Exposed. and starts running away with it. And he trips the guy over. And I was like, well, that's a nightmare. Aye like aye aye. the mom is so embarrassed everywhere. But anyways, that idea probably, you know, he saw the benefit of Ramadan and Eid and he enlightenment. One thing I was certainly ignorant of until recently, and I think a lot of people are, is, is how strict it is. And I think there's a lot, there's a misconception a lot with many Muslim traditions or holidays where it's like, it's stricter than other things. So I think that even breaking that preconception is probably super helpful. You don't drink water? Not even right. Not water? Even, yeah, exactly. That's the recurring yeah. question. I don't know why. I think it's becoming a thing among us. Like, that's the question like not even the water the water gets them and I can tell you like nobody's drinking water anyway like people need to drink more water their water intake is not what's more important in their lives but somehow when you tell them about Ramadan suddenly they think about the water yeah. well I well, think I have friends that, that don't though I do have friends that like really don't at all so so it's the water gets them I just yeah. think that every religion is strict if you want to follow it like by word you know but I think in general You know, it's up to the individual how much they f follow it. I don't know. There, there are, I mean, there are layers to this. There isn't one way. I mean, a lot of people believe that they have the right way, right? And that they know the religion. But I think that there isn't a single way when you look at people generally. Across all religions. Yeah, it's just like yeah. any other celebration or, you know, holiday. I just are you going to go to the church on Christmas? Are you just going to exchange gifts? Mm -hmm. Is it about Santa? Is it about Jesus? It's customize it but i do think that people in the middle east are more conservative across the board compared and, to others and ramadan is a big out of all the five pillars it's like yeah that's well, the one that people get the most like crazy about for some reason because there's an element of control in like the whole ramadan like so are you familiar with the five pillars of islam jack no so islam has five I mean, pillars vaguely, one vaguely <laughs> one to own a goat so two <laughs> 
So Islam has five pillars, which are things that Muslims have to do to be considered Muslims, and Ramadan is one of them, which is an o- it means what it's are an the obligation. Other I, I know the f- that there are five, but what to are recognize the other? like that there is only one God. Yeah, mon- the, like uh-huh. proclaiming monotheism, uh-huh. pr- conducting your prayers five times a day, which I think is compared to a lot of other religions, like it's a lot more. You know, to pray five di- five times a day. One of them is the pilgrimage, right? Yes, and that's that one is optional. Oh, okay. Well, that one, no. It's, it's half a pillar. It's optional. <laughs> it's optional as long as you can't carry it out. But I think in this day and age where it is accessible to go to Mecca by plane very easily, then it is obligation. It's um, not an obligation. I'm not going. It is an obligation as long as you can do it. If yeah, you cannot I can't do it. Do I it. mentally cannot like deal with that. So in the past, it wasn't an obligation because it meant that you would have to travel so many days and nights. And if you're old, then, you know, it's just like you die on the journey kind of thing. But now you die there. I mean, it depends. Because like Mecca now, it's a city where only Muslims can can enter, which I think is, it's the only place in the world where only a specific religion is allowed to enter. Now you have people going like twice, thrice, five times. It's like, yo, it's not Disneyland. Like, Well, actually, they're building hotels and resorts around it. There's a McDonald's like by where people have it as a view. Can you imagine having that, the pilgrimage as your view? I think that's like the influence of capitalism on the desert is that, you know, now I can buy an apartment where I can just watch this 24-7 and wow. get endless blessings, you know? Wait, so, so it's, it's, it's the, the faith, the praying, the fasting, yeah. the pilgrimage. The most I'm important one of them. is like the one that... The, the charity. Oh, oh, charity. charity. Zakat, charity is the one that That's nobody... That's the best one. That's the best one, but it, best people don't one. get rigid about this one as they do about Ramadan because Ramadan is like, oh, you're, you're eating? You know what the best Judging. thing about charity is? In Islam, for it to be considered a charity, you can't tell anyone about it. So it has to stay kind of quiet and anonymous. I I really enjoy that aspect of it. Yes, well, yeah. As it should be, though. But, you know, it's been used in a wrong way, and I'll tell you how. There is a university that was founded in Yemen that brought out a lot of radicals. And when you go to the university and you say, show us the source of funds that you got, they'd be like, no, it was given Uh, to us by charity. We can't reveal the names of those individuals. And it's like, no, you're school. Like, that's not how it works. Corruption. Damn, always away. But do you see that? Like, everything has... It's a double-edged sword. Oof. Everything has another dark side. Third definition, owning a sword. So, so we have goats, swords. I don't remember the first swords. one. So on, on the oh, subject of stereotypes, we have one yeah. final segment, and that is Orientalism Expressed. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, was, I forgot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I, I can't say that that was pleasant to hear. Dirk guys do that a lot. Why do they do that? I like it. It's in celebration. No, I'm kidding. I Ululating. know they do that. I love it. I love so. it. I learned it when I was five. And you, I, just, I would join weddings just to be able to do that. It was so much fun. I liked me. when other women did it. I, it's, I don't know. I, s- I still feel self-conscious about it. <laughs> so explain this segment for anybody listening for the first time. Orientalism well, Express. We're basically taking um, segments of American popular culture, whether series or film, that uh, depict Arabs or Muslims in their best light, and we're commenting on that. And how we comment about how it creates stereotypes in society, how the media influences our perceptions, especially today in America where Islamophobia is rampant. So you've got a clip for today prepared. Do you want to introduce it, or should we just listen first? Yeah, let's listen first because, yeah, it speaks for itself. I'll hear it with, with our audiences live too. It's, our, it's my first time listening to it. Yeah, so there's a bit at the beginning that doesn't matter and the bit in the end that doesn't matter. But it's like one second and nobody cares. Vamonos. 
drop that bomb, you got my vote and the vote of every real American. See, listen, Mr. President, my buddy Ace and I were having this conversation the other day, and just out of nowhere, accidentally, I let slip the word fag. Well, my buddy gets all bent out of shape saying, Rafa, you gotta be careful, you don't know who's around, you know? And then he teaches me this little trick. Every time we see one of them homosexuals, we use the word watermelon. And I said, geez, Ace, goddamn, that's ingenious. What do you call, what do you call blacks? He says, Texans. I said, what do you call, uh, Spicks or Spanish folks? He says, uh, he says, truckers. And finally I say, well, what do you call them Arabs? And he looks at me and he says, well, hell, Ralph, we just call them sand niggers. You see what I'm saying, Mr. President? Nobody gives a shit about no dirty-ass sand nigger. And as far as their nukes goes, they're so Stone Age backwards, they've probably never even seen a button, let alone know how to push one. Oof. Boom! Well, I didn't hear that. I did not expect... It was, it was wrong... On so many, like in so wow. many ways across the board against <laughs> every culture. From? It's not a show. It's a movie called Deterrence. And um, we'll have to do an episode of how many movies were made before actual events happen. And that was predicted. That was predicted. Yeah, there's so many shows. You know, that song, well, Bombs two, Over. 2000, this, this yeah. Bombs yeah. Over Baghdad. Like, my God. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah, this movie was made in 2000. And actually, it reflects on the first Gulf War when uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait. So this is what is happening. And the vice president, who's been appointed because the president died of the u.s gets stuck in uh, a diner in mm-hmm. colorado and the president of iraq decide that he wants to get loco and play with nuclear weapons or whatever with you know and so the vice president's trying to deal with this crisis by saying well i get the bigger nuclear weapon so let's play and he ends up destroying baghdad and uh, in the making of this decision he um gives a voice to his audience which are the people in the diner and one of them is the bigot that we just heard who you know describes all the slurs and why all the slurs have been remedied except for one which is the reason why you can go ahead and bomb them because even the slur with which we call them nobody cares about it so if yeah. you don't care about the slur, like why would you care about them? Why you know, would you? So, yeah, no, I mean, I get it. So in his very obscure, repugnant, like racist tirade, he actually put his finger on something very shrewd. I mean, which but is that's, like that's the problem. Like this is what's so terrifying about which this is, fun segment that we do. Yes, but like he put his finger on that. Is all the all the other minorities? You know, like there's there are slurs attached and stigmas. This is the one category that nobody's actually trying to redress the attitudes. Yeah, nobody's it. trying to say no to Islamophobia. Yeah. And that's it's what allowed. this clip it's is acceptable. about. It's like, oh, for the blacks, you have this. Hispanics, you have that. Like, homosexuals, you have this. You, you know, you, there's a code for it. There's a covert way. But with that, you can be blatant. When you it comes to Durkas, like, just be crass. It's okay. Nobody anti, cares. I mean, I called it Islamophobia for a second. But what's, I mean, he was talking about Arabs specifically. That would be anti-Semitism. Because yeah. they are Semitic, but you, you'd never hear that term used in that way because some people who are anti-Semitic are Semitic, which is interesting. Yeah, it's like a more sensitive term, I guess, anti-Semitism, or at least as a concept that's seen more sensitively, like anti-Semitism versus an- uh, Islamophobia. I don't know. There's a phobia. Yeah, <laughs> phobia yeah, is I in mean, the word itself. The guy nuked Baghdad. <laughs> I mean, isn't in that kind movie. of what they wanted to do so, later on? Nuked it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's... Don't eat at that diner. Whatever. Did you ever serving. watch Wag the Dog? Which one? It's a it's a movie about how Hollywood is presenting scenarios to test the feeling of the audiences and how they also use films oh, to distract yeah, yeah, away yeah. from I political events. Yeah. 
It's Robert De Niro. It's actually a great movie. And I think to what extent is that true? You know, sometimes, at least working in, in, in D.C., I know that a lot of people, before they, before they issue a specific policy, they want to get a vibe of how people will receive it. So they do leaks and they have a, a specific newspaper. For example, let's say, I want to see how the people of Yemen would react to ABC. So then they release an article that's like a rumor. And if, if there's huge backlash against that rumor, they shift their policy. And so can movies be used in that way? I mean, Absolutely. they have been. Yeah, I mean, been, yeah. the, actually, it kind of helped. As long it, as Americans it, feel aligned. more American having an enemy that's Arab, then sure, let's go for it. Yeah, most of these movies were made in the 90s and like 80s. But I mean, think 2000, about... And there was never... Americans always have to have an enemy, yeah. right? Think of it that way. Like, how, what would America look like if they didn't have enemies? Would America survive? You know, you know in, in foreign affairs, there's this theory of rallying around the flag, uh, the idea that having an outside enemy that's not within your own nation keeps the nation more cohesive. And in America, in a country that's more divided than ever, you know, what, how does it serve this political system and how does it serve the people to stay together? But, I mean, I see the shift. You know, it was Arabs, it was this, and then you it had... It was Russians. Yeah, it was Russians. They're the Cold making War. a comeback, so... They are Russiagate. The That's Russians, right. they're the Germans. And then Chinese. The Japanese. But we didn't even have like a Vietnam moment. There was like a, uh, like a shift of consciousness during no. the Vietnam War where yeah, you had like a, the, the civil society kind of stood against it. There was a movement. I, I guess I was crushing that never happened again. And that's the Durka didn't get it out of... They're not, they're not going to get it. And I don't see the shift yet, but that's something we can further research in other Orientalism Express and see if there's any more favorable... So to those who are narrative, to those who are Durkas. listening to us, this is the end of our Orientalism Express segment. We are District Durkas, District Durkas, season AKA two, dirty ass Arabs, season two, season two. Next week we'll bring you specific subjects that are gonna intrigue you and engage you some more. So thank you guys for listening to us. Thank you, Jack, 